0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana,
1: I'm Kate Young,
0: and this is Earth Eats.
1: Why do we grow here in this, in our neighborhood, put it in our truck, and then take it to another neighborhood? Our people need food right here. So we started doing our farmers markets right in our neighborhood. This week on the show, a special presentation of the
0: Hoosier Young Farmers podcast, updating the narrative on food and farming in Indiana. The first three episodes cover land access, food apartheid, and women in farming. That's all coming up on Earth Eats, so stay with us. This is Kate Young, and this week we have a special presentation of the first three episodes of the Hoosier Young Farmers podcast from producer Alex Chambers and hosted by Liz Brownlee. The mission of the podcast is to update the narrative on food and farming in Indiana by hearing from the farmers themselves. Let's dive right in.
2: Hello, hello, everyone. Liz Brownlee here. I own and run Nightfall Farm in Crothersville, Indiana with my husband, Nate. I'm also the president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, and this is Alex Chambers. He's producing this podcast.
3: Yes. Hello. Uh, welcome to the Hoosier Young Farmer podcast.
2: Our goal is to bring you voices of farmers here in Indiana, farmers you probably haven't heard of, farmers you might not picture when you picture farmers in Indiana.
3: Right. Like, who do you picture?
2: Uh, let me give you the highlight reel. So I picture Anne. Uh, A 30-something woman, she's a first-generation farmer, and she's building a thriving veggie operation, plus creating a food hub that helps other farmers distribute their food and sell more local food. I picture Frida. She's a former nurse and now an urban farmer up in Gary, and she's raising veggies and goats and honeybees in her community and for her community. I picture Genesis and Eli delivering their organic veggies uh, every Wednesday, year-round, 20 different restaurants every Wednesday. It's pretty remarkable. And that's sort of like highlight reel makes me happy and keeps me going on a hard day and I guess that's the beauty of the project actually is that the whole goal here is to kind of break that like sepia tone stereotype of who a farmer is in Indiana like when people picture a farmer here they picture like an older white guy in plaid on his combine in a cornfield you know and um, with this podcast we get a picture or you get a capture a uh, full color updated narrative about farming in Indiana and And try to amplify the voices of underrepresented farmers like women and BIPOC farmers and beginning farmers and first-generation farmers. And we're going to talk about big issues, but mostly we're going to uh, shut up and hear from the farmers themselves. (laughs) And... Uh, I think that's good. You can see I get a little excited about all of this. Yeah,
3: I was really impressed with the voices the team managed to collect, um, just like from all over the state.
2: Right. And so every episode will have sort of a handful of those voices talking about something that's important to Indiana's farmers, um, like this episode, which is all about land acquisition. The key with land access is that it's a big deal for farmers. Finding your farmland, especially for folks in their first 10 years of farming just getting started, is tough. You know, the average American farmer is male, he's white, and he's 59 and a half years old-ish. And so he's thinking about retiring. And in the next nine years, something like 400,000 acres of land are going to change hands as that whole generation of farmers um, retires. And so 400,000 acres, picture that. That is Texas, California, and Montana combined. Wow. That's a lot of land. Yeah. And so it could be this really big opportunity For changing how we care for the land in this country, how we feed our communities, who gets to own land and who gets to build wealth. But at the same time, a lot of that farmland will probably be developed and a lot of it will be consolidated into bigger and bigger farms. So for folks farming on a small scale like I do um, or in urban spaces, land access is actually like the number one hurdle Mm -hmm. all across the country and here in Indiana. Wow. Okay, so uh, I'm going to duck out now so we can hear from the farmers themselves.
4: You know, we started looking and we could not find anything. We kept on finding farms that were needed so much work that they wanted an extreme amount of money for that we had finally just gave up. And John told me to quit looking. He's like, (laughs) you're done. Stop.
5: Yeah, you're looking for that diamond in the rough for sure
6: and we just couldn't find anything that um was even remotely affordable (laughs) um so even even you know like uh renting an apartment seemed kind of out of the realm of possibility for us and so uh, we just began to expand our our search and we were expanding and expanding and expanding and we ended up in deputy indiana which is about an hour outside of louisville
7: pastor curtis Whitaker of progressive community church had a vision of faith cdc and he wanted to do a community development corporation based around agriculture and healthy eating and learning and education and all uh, along those things. So the way it became about the city of Gary, he asked the city of Gary for some land that was just sitting there. Nobody was using this next to the church. No one was using this land.
5: Nobody was on the land. It was just old abandoned houses. You know, we, we rented for several years. And then we finally bought a house and it was on five acres. And we're like, we made it. We've got five acres, this beautiful house. Um, You know, we had, what, two sows and a boar and we would do a couple dozen pigs. And then we quickly learned that, okay, we've we've reached our limits on this land.
8: I actually, in 2016, I wrote to Monarch Beverage. Um, I said, you guys have um, 25 liquor stores in this neighborhood that you service and there are three grocery stores. The three main grocery stores in our neighborhood are along Pendleton Pike. There's no bus that goes down Pendleton Pike. So we're talking about a low-income neighborhood with low access to food, little to no access to transportation, and no grocery stores. When I reached out to them, My proposal was that people can get to beer and alcohol quicker than they can get to anything fresh. And you guys are servicing all these liquor stores, but you have all of this land here right in the middle of this neighborhood that you're just cutting once a month and you're not doing anything with it. Let's put a garden here that will grow food for the pantries. I was doing some um, urban
6: agriculture in Cincinnati for about six years and had a pretty thriving CSA going um, in my neighborhood. My husband and I began to talk about uh, the possibilities of moving to a place where we had some land. And so he uh, is the most, well, we're both mobile as far as our jobs are concerned. So he found a job in Louisville and we began to search for a place to
4: live. When we moved here to Indiana, we had plans on going back to Southern Illinois. We were not going to stay here at all. But About a year into it, we realized how much we really did like this area and that we would like to make this area our home. And several, probably about two or three years after that, we started looking actively at larger tracts of land because we were sitting on seven acres and just didn't have the opportunity for any growth. You know, when you're able to only cut hay or Grave goats you really didn't have a choice of growing anywhere so we
9: couldn't afford more land than what we had in Iowa Um, and there we had three and a half acres and we couldn't afford more than that there
6: and that's kind of goes to why we bought the the farm we did is um, tillable land is much more expensive than non-tillable land Uh, especially in Iowa but even so in Indiana and so, you know, to buy 30 acres of tillable land in Indiana would have been way out of our price range. Um, and that's the that's the dilemma. You know, do you take out a couple million dollar loan to, to buy that? <laughs> we, we decided not to. Everywhere we looked was the price of land was just really uh, out of our reach, you know, um, and we both work full time. um And we both actually have part-time jobs on top of our full-time jobs as well. And so uh, we were really surprised that it was so difficult to get a couple of acres. Um, We figured it wouldn't be so hard. Um, And then once we found a place that we liked and we could afford, then we ran into some issues with financing because – a traditional, we couldn't get a traditional mortgage for the farm. Um, And then when we were told to go to the FSA, the FSA, um, well, we were told to go to banks that give farm loans. And so um, the farm loan people said that we couldn't get farm loans because we didn't have any um, agricultural collateral. So, um, because we came from the city.
7: It took a couple of years for them to okay it, but when they did okay, they, they donated the land to us. So the, the, where the farm is was actually, the, the, uh, we have about an acre, it's not a very big farm. We have a little bit over an acre of land there. Where the farm is where was actually houses, blighted, abandoned houses. They tore it down for us, the city actually tore it down for us and then they cultivated the land. Um, they came out and they just cultivated and put the sand down and everything just so that we can grow on that line.
5: We started renting a house and it was a couple of acres. And we asked the landlord if he'd let us use it because he wasn't using it. And he said, sure, go ahead and, you know, trade me for some chickens. So that's what we did. You know, that's how we bartered. And then um, we found the five acres. And that was much more attainable, five acres and a little house.
9: We had a budget and we knew we needed to stick within that. And we needed, you know, these qualities in it. Um, and the property we found had been on the market for 26 days, <laughs> and uh, we were driving from Iowa to come and look at it, so we came and looked at it, and then
4: we came back and looked at it, and then we said, okay, let's put in an offer. I just happened to be online one morning, and <laughs> something popped on the screen, and I seen this farm, I called the lady, and she ended up being the granddaughter of the original owners of this farm. And she's like, oh, I'll have my dad meet you out there. So, John was working second shift, and I woke him up about two hours before he was supposed to get up that day. And I'm like, John, you got to get up. I'll, I'll buy you a Mountain Dew on the way to where we're going. I got a surprise. And he knew what was up. I mean, he he knew full and well what I probably was doing and we pulled up on the farm and you know we both knew when we were here that this was something we were very interested in
5: we were very very lucky
4: <laughs> it was
9: at the max of our budget and we were okay with that though because it provided us with s- such wonderful opportunities that it was really hard for us to be like no, you know, we've already compromised on quite a bit. I mean, like I said, I, I only have, you know, two and a half acres of, of tillable. So, um, that was something that, you know, we were like, okay, this, this is what we're going to work with and we're going to do what we got to do and we're rolling with it.
5: And we did so much on that five acres. Um, I mean, if you are really careful with your grazing methods and, and, how many animals you're putting on your land. You can actually do quite a bit on five acres. We
8: have 7.6 acres in wow. the middle of the city. Yeah, we're right at 46th and Post Road, and it's a uh, uh, high, you know, it's a high urban area,
4: <laughs> to mm-hmm. say the least. Uh, but land in this area, it was, it was either high or it was, you know, vacant land with no structures, no home on it. So we were, we sort of needed a place that we could just move right into and start something up immediately and this fit that bill. Yeah, we actually
6: were homeless for a couple of weeks in the transition um, because we <laughs> we didn't think our house would sell really fast and it sold immediately. Um, and so then we were kind of like, just trying to find something and trying to find something. And when the financing fell through and when the loan officer was asking me if I had tractors or, you know, like just something, I, you know, I joked and I was like, I have like 30 menopausal hens, you know, what's that going to get me? she did not think that was funny. So,
5: you know, it was <clears throat> it was really touch and go there for a while. Actually, my in-laws, they lived on 20 acres in Rushville, and they wanted to be closer to their grandkids. And so we talked about, you know, what if we go in together, we can get a bigger chunk of land, and we could live on the same piece of property. So, you know, you could be close to your grandkids, we can help you out. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. And After many years of searching, we found this beautiful place and it's absolutely perfect.
6: And then, you know, once we finally did get the farm, it was, you know, more uphill battles with um, dealing with the soil and just trying to uh, begin amending it, really, especially with no tractor. We don't have any tractor. (laughs) We have nothing, you know.
4: Oh, I was just going to say, I think one of the biggest things that has us going in this direction where our farm's not viable for itself financially is because we had to come in and buy a farm. I mean, we didn't have anything to step into. It was us working for it. So... We just had to start from the ground up, and luckily we found an awesome place. It's a very, very old farm, but the infrastructure needs a lot of work. You know, we're always working on fence. We just got done running 1,700 foot of fence in December. So the the work that's to be done and then also just the equipment that we're realizing. My tractors
5: are from the 60s. I have... I have some from the 50s. I mean, the tractors are very outdated and the equipment's always needing worked on or something. But fortunately, I know how to work on that stuff. So that helps also. Uh,
3: another aspect of it was
6: um, we have no intention of having employees. So, yeah. it, you know, buying 20 acres of tillable land, we, we would never be able to work all that ourselves. Um, so The way
9: we want to work it, right. yes. <laughs> We, we enjoy having, you know, as um, as little impact on our land as possible in doing our farming endeavors. So, um, you know, we're not out here running a tiller um, to, to make, you know, product every few weeks.
4: We bought the farm from two brothers and the one brother is in his 80s now and he still comes here to the farm, uh, brings his dog, and runs, you know, will stay here on the porch and talk with us or go out and do stuff with us on the farm. But he always tells the story that his dad would say that this farm, the soil on this farm was so poor that a rabbit had to pack its lunch to get across.
5: We just happened to be fortunate enough to get this 150 acres and I'll never leave.
4: Um, But we're,
8: we're growing a lot of good stuff in the hood.
9: Yeah, those are all things that that work for us, um, and that's why we have the land access story that we have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the voices of farmers in Indiana. It's the first episode of the Hoosier Young Farmers podcast, a special presentation here on Earth Eats. We heard from Megan Ayers, Frida Graves, Nikki Keaton, Sharana Moore, Armanda and Ben Riggs, and Mardine and John Roach. The Hoosier Young Farmers podcast is made possible through support from Indiana Humanities, the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, and National Young Farmers Coalition. Thanks to host Liz Brownlee and producer Alex Chambers. After a short break, we'll hear more from the podcast. In Episode 2, they talk with Black farmers across Indiana about food apartheid and the challenges they face due to systemic racism in our food system. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats. This week, we have a special presentation of the Hoosier Young Farmers podcast. Here's episode two.
10: That bag of Doritos and that fago and that candy, if that's what's going to make my people feel good, if my daughter's going through a hard time and my son's going through a hard time and I know some peach rings and some gummy bears is going to make them feel good, I'm going to do what I can to make them feel good because we're going through so much.
2: Hello, everyone. This is the Hoosier Young Farmer podcast. I'm Liz Brownlee, your host. I'm president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition and a farmer at Nightfall Farm. And I'm here with Alex Chambers, the producer of this podcast.
3: Hello. Uh, You just heard from Sebeko Jawanza. He is the director of food justice at Flanner House in Indianapolis. And he was talking about this thing that can get lost when we get excited about local food.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So fruit, veggies, grass-fed meat, it's all a ton of work to grow. But the government doesn't subsidize it the way it supports those big fields of corn and soybeans that turn into those Doritos and Fagos.
3: Right. Which can then put healthy local food out of reach for people who don't have a lot
2: of money. Well, and it's not just about money. Uh, If there's no grocery store nearby, no place to buy local veggies, you're stuck. Uh, And so we're thinking about geography. And then we realize that race matters, too. So if you're Black or Latino in this country, you're much more likely to live in an area where it's hard to get healthy food. And that's no accident. That's systemic racism.
3: Right. In this episode, we're going to hear from Black farmers and urban farmers on why it's especially hard for their communities to get good food and what they're doing about that. So we'll get back to Sebeko and then the rest of the crew.
10: There are people who, you know, know I'm not about to go spend a hundred and something dollars to, to prepare a meal for my family. I can get a pack of hot dogs for $5 and some buns, and I'm feeding, you know, my family of four here, and that's what I have. To, that's what I have. That's, that's the only thing that I can do. And I don't have transportation. So I'm going down the street and getting it from the family dollar or the gas station. And that's what we're going to feed our family on.
7: A lot of people don't have the transportation to drive out the whole foods and Myers and places like that. So they're going to go where they can go get to and what they can afford. And so the cheap, they can afford the cheaper food, the more pork items and, you know, the things like that. That's what they're going to get. And you can't really blame them because they have to be able to feed their families.
1: So many people do not have access to healthy food through no fault of their own. It's where you live. And that's a sad thing to say, but it is the truth.
10: From a policy standpoint, like I, I feel like, it's, like it, it's hard for me to comprehend why there's such a, uh, a lack of fresh food in the area. I just kind of wonder like what policies that were put into place influenced that, you know?
7: The area is a steel town. Most of the houses that were built were built around a steel mill for people to live and work. And of course, the doctors and the lawyers and all like that had bigger houses and things like that. Most of the black people here came from the South. Their ancestors came from the South, let me put it that way, because... These were not the original ones. <laughs> Came from the South. They're from Mississippi, um, Arkansas, places along that line. About, uh, I think it's 68, 69, Gary got his first black mare. Great guy. At that point, there was a large exodus of um, Caucasian people that left the city. We had a, a thriving downtown. I mean, when I was a kid, you couldn't even walk on the sidewalks. The stores that were downtown, like Sears and Pennies and Gordon's and all, they made the exodus to a place called Maryville, Maryville uh became a township first, and then it was a city. They kind of left Gary, and um, kind of a red line was drawn around Gary. People with the, the home loans and things of that nature, that, that kind of dried up a little bit. There was only certain places you could go. And when I was growing up, we had A.M.P. Kroger's, Jules, all those stores. They're not here anymore. Uh, let's just say I'm not going to use any name because I, I don't have anything against our grocery stores. Let's just say we ended up with a Johnny's. And Johnny's couldn't afford to bring in the more expensive, higher-end food. And so Johnny's went to the bar, ate hot dogs and things like that. And the people couldn't afford to pay for the more expensive food.
10: And then you have, you know, so much going on socially that people just want to feel good. And if that bag of Doritos and that Fago and the, that those things are going to be the, the, that candy, if that's what's going to make my people feel good, if my daughter is going through a hard time and my son's going through a hard time and i know some peach rings and some gummy bears is going to make them feel good i'm going to do what i can to make them feel good because we're going through so much um but you know tomatoes not going to do the same thing (laughs) that that can do right i mean it just is what it is that's that's what young people are all about right
7: Okay, so my name is Frida Graves. I'm the Faith Farm Administrator. I've been there for six years, six years and some months right now. Uh, two children, married, live in Gary, Indiana. I've lived in Gary, Indiana my whole life.
10: My name's Daniel Garcia. We have a small farm. We run Garcia's Gardens on the far east side of Indianapolis. My name is Sabeco Jawanza, resident here in Indianapolis. I was born and raised here. Um, I work for Flanner House. So Flanner House is a a multi-service community center.
8: I am Sharana Moore. I am the garden manager at Lawrence Community Gardens. My name is Joyce Randolph. I'm uh,
1: owner of the Elephant Gardens. We are an urban farm here in the city of Indianapolis. We purchased the property on Sherman in 2013. And within that first two years, there was a decline in the availability of food in our area. And I'd say the beginning of the third year, um, the grocery store down the street from us that had been there more than 40 years closed. I mean, literally the people were like given notice that day that they no longer had
10: jobs. I mean, we had we had the double, double eight stores shut down a few years ago. We had March shut down the neighborhood grocery stores were closing. Uh, First you had the double eights closing then the marshes were closing. Kroger and and Walmart were moving kind of on the outskirts of the, of of the city or to downtown. And so um, with the, with 2012, I believe the, the double eight moved out of this neighborhood. And so the community has always been wanting to have a particular grocery store that they can go to within their neighborhood. In
8: 2017, We started to really see our need to improve food access in our communities. And as I'm meaning our, I mean people of color. My farm is at 46th and Post Road, and that's a big, huge chunk of the Far East Side community that's really struggling right now with access to food
1: we were like, okay, we really have to ramp up now. How can we help our community? And that is where we really jumped off being an actual urban farm and providing vegetables and things for not only just our neighborhood. Then we branched out the following year into doing farmer's markets in various places in the city. And then we narrowed it down to like, but why do we grow here in, this, in our neighborhood, put it in a truck, and then take it to another neighborhood? Our people need food right here. So we started doing our farmers markets right in our neighborhood.
10: There's a term nationwide that's been going on called food apartheid. And that's what we use in terms of how how we're tackling this situation, because systematically, there's a reason why communities, particularly communities with a lot of Black people, have had these issues. And it's really been because it's business as usual. Um, when it comes to farmers, farmland, uh, when it comes to grocery stores, when it comes to who owns that food, uh, when it comes to the policies that are built around food, they have been very much targeted on creating this food injustice that we have going on right now.
7: I've never used food apartheid. That's not something I would use. Now I would say, like I said earlier, that, yeah, we got cut out of a lot of things. Uh, or, or this area did, uh, especially African-American people of color, not just African-American, Latinos, um, indigenous people, you know. We did get cut out of a lot of things. And we call it a food dump. They're dumping the cheaper items here. You know, we can sell them ten of these for a dollar, but there's no nutritional value to it. We don't care that there's diseases that can be avoided if the people were just to start eating healthy young and, and learn about health and nutrition and nutrients in their body young. So we call it a food dump. Now that would be our terminology.
8: A lot of America's history on agriculture was literally built on the backs of Black people. So forming the Indiana Black Farmers Co-op was about providing mentors for people of color, for providing a a space where we would be able to collectively and strategically grow uh, similar and different crops um, for our markets. Um, for our families to be able to feed uh, to feed our families. The white farmers were already doing that, but that's it's exclusive, right? They aren't comfortable working with us a lot of times. And so we just felt like we needed to form our own network that was going to be hyper-focused on our own community. We knew that the government would not come back and save us, um, that they are not planning to put any grocery stores back into our neighborhoods. That in order for that to happen, our neighborhoods would have to be gentrified first. And so the best way to combat some of the issues that our community in particular was faced with was with agriculture. And so that's why we formed the co-op. We also have a what we call a beauty bodega.
10: We created a small scale grocery store called Cleo's Bodega.
1: Which is um, based on eating healthy.
10: And we also have a cafe inside that store. And so people are able to come and use Wi-Fi and kind of sit and chill and get a smoothie and some coffee. What you
1: put in makes you feel better. And when you feel better, then you are going to look
10: better. And then also do some small scale shopping so you can shop for your week. Uh, It's really built for uh, people within the neighborhood to just come and get a couple of things for either dinner or for that week and, and to maintain themselves. We
1: call it Beauty Bodega, but it's based on making you beautiful from the inside out.
8: Like,
7: you're a superhero if you can grow food. People don't realize that. It's revolutionary. We had students out there for six weeks. We were in the winter time too, learned about the eggs and the chickens and the vegetables and things like that. There's one young lady, and she didn't come from our farm, but she started at Thea Bowman. She comes out now, and she's in veterinary school, and she's the one that's giving our goats the vaccinations. But she was from Thea Bowman, and Thea Bowman was the first school that we worked with.
10: One of our first participants in our feed program, I believe we grew some basil and backed it up and was able to sell it. And the realization that he could make more money selling basil than actually packaging up weed and selling it, kind of blew his mind. and And it's a story that I always like to kind of start with because I don't think we understand, you know, that that hustler mentality that people have in terms of wanting to make money, and it's like we don't want people to lose that because that's what America was built off of was that hustle mentality. What we want to do is switch the hustle in terms of what you're selling and the mentality of, what's community. Uh, so that's one story that I always like try to keep in mind. In 20 years,
8: I am hoping um, to end food apartheid in, within the next 20 years. I see each one of these children that come through our program recreating the vision over and over and over again until they can just go out in their backyard to get their eggs and their vegetables, and then they might have... Walmart might have to be 30 minutes away.
0: I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We just heard from Daniel Garcia, Frida Graves, Sabego Diwanza, Sharana Moore, and Joyce Randolph. This is a special presentation of the Hoosier Young Farmers podcast, produced by Alex Chambers and hosted by Liz Brownlee with support from Indiana Humanities, Hoosier Young Farmers, and National Young Farmers Coalition. Next up, Episode 3, a look at women farming in Indiana. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats, and today we have a special presentation of the Hoosier Young Farmers podcast. Here's episode three.
2: Okay, Alex, I have a story for you. Great. I really like
3: stories, but can you introduce yourself first?
2: Yes. Yes, I can. Uh, sorry. I'm Liz Brownlee. I'm a farmer and the president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, and you are listening to the Hoosier Young Farmer podcast. So are you ready for the story? I am. So a few weeks ago, I was selling at the farmer's market and a family I knew, they stopped by to catch up. They had just moved home to Indiana. So their young kids actually didn't really know me. And midway through our conversation, the seven year old boy stopped us and he said, are you a boy or a girl? And so this happens to me a fair bit. I have short hair and muscles, and I actually specifically picked out a pink shirt to wear that day, thinking that it would be like a cue, right, to anyone who might be confused. And I know it's dumb to strategize and I shouldn't worry about it, but in small conservative towns, I I feel like I have to. And so um, anyway, the, the boys' parents handled it like champs. I said, I'm a girl. And they said, are you surprised because she has big muscles? She gets muscles from working so hard on her farm. And I thought that was a great response, you know, and, and like I'm really glad that the boy was curious and that he felt comfortable asking. On the other hand, it made me wonder, like, how is our society so clearly sexist that he's seven, raised in a thoughtful family, and he still thinks it's weird, or at least remarkable, that a woman could be a farmer and be strong?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> wild. But that is an appropriate story, because that is what this episode is about.
2: Wait, this episode's about women with muscles breaking gender norms?
3: No? <laughs> that would be fun. Oh. Kind of. Okay. Um, it's, it's about the kinds of assumptions people make about farmers. Oh, and nice. who gets to be one? Um, <clears throat> who has the necessary knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. But we are specifically hearing from women. So, yeah, it's about gender. But I was telling my partner about it the other day, and she said, so it's about power. And I was like, oh, yes, it's <laughs> all about power. So that's what I hope that you'll think about as you listen to these stories about the assumptions people are making about farmers, um, how power is working in the background of all that.
2: I love that we're going to look at this big picture systemic issue, but also hear the voices of real women who are farming in Indiana and hear their specific stories.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> one more thing before we get into it. Uh, the first voice you'll hear is Andrew Raridan. He's a sociology professor and was one of our two trusty interviewers. And he's talking with farmer Megan Ayers. farming is coded so masculine uh, especially this conventional kind of farming so um what have your experiences been like as a woman farmer and what what kinds of interactions have you had
10: with your neighbors around that
3: <laughs> well so far um
6: the well I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be generous here. Uh, essentially, you don't, you don't they have to be. That's me. not
3: that's not the point of this <laughs> at all. So, but believe me, like I've been asking that question for a, of, of people for a long time, and I've I've heard a lot of wacky stuff. So, uh, yeah, you don't need to hold back yeah. on that.
6: <laughs> well, I mean, I I get that what I'm doing is really unfamiliar to them, and so they think they're being helpful by telling me. To do what they know. So I've been told to grow corn. I've been told to grow soybeans. I've been told that someone else can come and grow on my land for me. And I say thank you and, you know, and give them a little laugh and tell them that I have my own plans and that I appreciate them looking out for me. People also tell me that my chickens are all going to get murdered and. Don't I know that there's coyotes around here? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not surprised by the pushback, not because that's what I expect, but just because the culture in this area is purely corn, soy, and hay. And that's okay. That's totally fine. They can continue to do that because that's what they know and they're good at it and they're set up for that. You know, I mean, we're talking about. Generations of family farms in this area. And so, yeah, I do things a little differently, and they think I'm a little crazy. I'm pretty sure that they think that I'm bound for failure. And that's kind of awesome because I want to prove them wrong. I'm not looking on my farm as a return on investment. What I'm looking to do is make the soil better and make this tiny little 11 acre environment that I live in healthier and better than when I started. So that's not going to be, it's not going to look like what they do. um, And I'm not going to use the same tools uh, and, and that's okay.
4: I've had some folks at farmer's markets and they always really want to question my what we're doing on the farm. And when I give them reasoning of why we're doing grass-fed, you know, then they might have those other thoughts of conventional farming and conventional feedlot of beef. And, you know, they really question why I have the theories that I do for what we're raising and how we're raising it. So sometimes I run into those folks that really ask a lot of questions and it's, I, I feel like it might be from the side of me being a lady and, and not a, a guy. Cause when John's in those same situations, he's not getting the pressure that I get whenever <laughs> I get those questions. I went to a hemp training. I think, I think it was Clay County.
9: The room was mostly of our current farmer population. So um 65 and older gentlemen. But the gentleman who was sitting across from me, actually at lunch, we were engaging in conversation and, and he said, you know, I just, I just wouldn't think of you as a farmer. And I was like, oh, dude, really? Well, I mean, I am, you know, I, I mean. I'm I'm glad that you, you know, brought this topic up, but but I am a farmer and I'm certainly interested to in hearing more about you and your farm and your farming operation. And we did strike up a conversation after that and it it went really well, but it was definitely interesting to have that experience of engaging in conversation with another individual on that level. I have to go into the supply stores and they they
11: just look at me like, where's your husband? You just wouldn't
5: think if you was a farmer. Some well-meaning and well-intentioned men, older men trying to, you know, be nice and chat. But I'll say, oh, well, where's the farmer today? Do you know what this is for? So when I would call and try and find a piece of equipment or- Where's your husband? I would try to find our breeding stock and I would make these phone calls to other farmers.
12: Can I speak to your husband about this?
5: They were always kind of surprised when it was a, a woman's voice on the end. Where's the farmer today? <laughs> and then I tell them what I want and they say, do you know what this is for? I'm
11: like, uh, yes, that's why I'm here to order it. You know, they all automatically assume that there's a man behind me somewhere going to write the check
0: or
5: do it. He was a farmer. I just look at them point blank and say, well, you're looking at her.
11: And I'm just like, this is my venture. Kenny's name. He doesn't care to have it on there. It's fine if it is. But he's just like, you know, this is yours.
6: What were you doing up on that tractor?
11: Because I spent so long under his coattails. He doesn't want me there. And he'll even tell somebody he says, "Oh, you guys, you guys raise great tomatoes." He said, "I don't raise great tomatoes. She raises great tomatoes."
5: You know, because they were always kind of surprised. It was a, a woman's voice on the end. I kind of like that, actually. I kind of like being a surprise.
9: At the farmers market when i'm out there vending and and selling product i look similar to how i do now but i like to wear lipstick i like to wear mascara even when i'm not farming i enjoy that and so for me i feel like a lot of people it's hard for them to piece that together with me being a farmer and it's also sometimes hard to internalize that as well to internally acknowledge that I am a farmer, that I am validated in saying that I am a farmer. Because I feel like a lot of people think, unless you have, you know, 500, 10,000 acres of farming land, that, you know, are you really a farmer kind of a thing. So for me, that has been, I guess, a personal struggle.
1: I never thought any time in my life that I would be interested in farming, um, my husband had always said, you know, we need a little garden out in the backyard. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And we had a small garden in the backyard. And literally that's where elephant garden started is my daughter's like, you know, we have such a hard time finding organic stuff at the grocery store. Why don't we just say, can I use a little bit of this backyard out here? I said, sure, why not? And what started that year of like three or four rows, the following year was like eight rows and then in that same year is when we happen upon the property where Elephant Garden is now located.
4: John was and our son actually go on a trip every year to southern Missouri and the weekend that they were gone was a perfect weekend for viewing hay. So I actually was out cutting hay with one of our old tractors. You know, out cutting hay with another tractor. And then um, I started bailing on the day that they headed home. But I stopped one day to introduce myself to a new neighbor. And he's like, I seen you. What were you doing up on that tractor? <laughs> he's like, you were down there at that other house. I'm like, yes, we. that's where we cut hay. at one of the other neighbors. and." Yes, I was cutting hay. He's like, well, what were you doing? Where's your husband at? (laughs) So when I'm driving like tractors up and down the road or if I'm cutting hay at another location, we're very fortunate. We have some great neighbors here in this area that allow us to cut hay just because it's locations that they don't have to mow if we cut their hay um but they i always do get some funny looks from folks driving by or doing double takes when they see that it's me
13: and it's not John out there we look at each other for a lot of the answers and my husband looks to me because i have way more agricultural background way more like in the realms of animal husbandry and fruit husbandry like he I've just had way more experience so he looks to me for all those answers and I'm just like oh no well I'll figure this out like just last week we had a deer get caught in our fence and it snapped its leg at the joint like completely off and I had to hold it it's a like probably 120 pound little buck like a yearling buck and hold it while he cut it out of the fence and then I tackled it on the ground so it would stop trying to like ram its body into the fence to escape and then ended up having to shoot it. I have like the man's role in many things, but then I'm the mother. I have five children, Uh, just all of the the household and domestic duties are all mine too. So it's just crazy, crazy lot, a crazy lot. It keeps me up a lot at night. (laughs) I
12: found that there were a lot of women that were involved, but there wasn't a good connection as far as growers. It was more like eating. Like the vegan, vegetarian movement, you know, we all have common interest in eating healthy, holistic living, taking care of our kids, that kind of thing. But as growers, we needed that resource to be able to depend on each other, calling, saying, I have this bug. Here, I'm sending you a picture. Are you getting these in your garden? Are you seeing anything like this? And what are you doing? And what is working? And and we needed that kind of network, too. We don't exclude men, but it's really been good to have another group of women that you can rely on that will talk to you about these things. And there's no like, well, honey, just don't worry your little pretty mind about that, you know, (laughs) which is what some of us had experienced over the years. And hopefully we don't have to have any new women farmers that are coming into this to have that happening to them you know, to have them ignored or say, can I speak to your husband about this? You know, <laughs> because I've had those things happen to me. Um, but I'm hoping that it's that error and that time is is disappearing to where people see the face of a farmer, not as just a man, that they realize that women are farmers too. And they are some of the highest quality farmers that I have met.
11: I will tell you there's not enough women farmers because I think we would make awesome farmers compared to a lot of the men I've met. no offense.
6: It's not about trying to grow this many bushels and looking at the the market and and how much that market will bear for you know x amount of input in this fertilizer. You know it's about feeding people and connecting with others through this thing that we've always done. We've always farmed and farming has led to um civilization. So why not take this opportunity to use it as a tool to connect with other people, as well as to teach other people that there is another way to feed our families and to feed each other.
2: And there you have it, folks. This is the Hoosier Young Farmer podcast, brought to you with support from Indiana Humanities, the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, and National Young Farmers Coalition. To learn more about how we're updating the narrative on food and farming in Indiana, go to hoosieryfc.org stories. Thanks to the farmers who lent their voices to this episode. That was Megan Ayers, Tracy Yeager, Nikki Keaton, Ann Merritt, Joyce Randolph, Armanda Riggs, Mardine Roach, Christy Schultz, and Mary Winstead. Thanks to Andrew Rariden and Jessica Murnane for coordinating these interviews, and Andrew Rariden again, as well as Rachel Brandenburg for conducting the interviews.
3: Our theme music is from Amy and we have additional music from Backward Collective. Our host, Liz Brownlee, got this project off the ground, and it was produced by me, Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.
0: That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats and this special presentation of the Hoosier Young Farmers Podcast. We'll see you next time.
3: The Earth Eats team includes Eobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.